You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been a week since Mayor Rick Blangiardi outlined his priorities in the State of the City Address. Now he's coming to a neighborhood near you in a series of town hall meetings. It kicks off in Eva Tuesday and then heads to Waianae on Thursday. What's on your mind? The proposed double-digit pay raises for his staff, or maybe it's property taxes or the repaving of our city streets. Uh, the meetings are a chance for you to ask and hear directly from the mayor and his cabinet members about what's bugging you. Here's the mayor. We're going to be taking our entire team out there. It'll either be a director or a deputy. So we're going to sort of go out in mass. And the idea there is so all of us, as people charged with the responsibility of, of doing the things that we do for the city, can hear firsthand and engage. And at the same time, hopefully impart some knowledge and some things that maybe people don't know about and haven't been aware. So... So I'm excited about that because this is a bold undertaking. We're going to do 11 over the next 10 weeks. This is really being done in earnest to, for want of a better way to say it, engage the community. I said to somebody the other day, if I had to position this, I'd like to think it's going to be an educational journey. We have all of our cabinet members attending weekly neighborhood board meetings or monthly neighborhood board meetings. We have good representation there. But when we bring our cabinet full force out there to the public and invite as many people was possible, not knowing who's going to come. I think this has the opportunity for some really meaningful dialogue and action on our part, perhaps on things that we're not aware of, things that we could possibly do. At the same time, hopefully create some confidence in the things that we are doing so people are better informed. It might be that some of the initiatives that you announced at the State of the City, you know, people have questions about that and it may affect their district. Right. But I think just in general, folks are wondering about the salary hikes that the commission is uh, undertaking right okay, now. Okay, well, let me clear up something that um, kind of rubbed me the wrong way about that because uh, since I've been in office for two and a half years, we've put one person on the salary commission, and that's only been recent. In fact, I'm not even sure if they've actually started. Salary commission has been in place. They raised the issue about raises for our team. I've now worked for two plus years, two years and three months nearly, with an incredible group of men and women who, in this day and age, really go above and beyond and we've not had any pay raises and in fact by the time that this would take place it would be well into this third year and I felt compelled to do that. I didn't put myself in for a raise. The Salary Commission recommended that. I've said in the past couple of years no but under the circumstances we put in a raise for myself and and for the council as set by the commission coming towards us, as well as for the city council. The one thing that I don't know enough about right now, and I need to find out about it, but since we're doing this interview this morning, is the idea or the notion of having the city council become full-time, where that came from. And that might be a push from the commission. I want to look at that. I can tell you this, that being on the city council is not a part-time job. And these people already put in tremendous hours. And so if there's anything else to be answered, that's what it is. But I really believe that the members of our cabinet have all earned the right to have a raise. And the fact that we haven't had one or they haven't had one in a couple of years, I think is a fair thing to do. I've always been, when I was running broadcast properties, on the side of the men and women who work for me and trying to never make money an issue for them. And I don't have to tell you that the cost of living has gone up. There's a lot of sacrifice that already goes on. It's kind of hard to quantify that. And people can say, you know, well, that's what they signed up for. But that also doesn't mean that they're not in how to get a raise through their hard work. It happens all over town, private sector, and elsewhere. It's just the circumstance. So I'm in favor of it. The fact that, you know, when time comes for collective bargaining, you don't see double-digit raises for, you know, the rank and file. I guess maybe that's why maybe some of the eyebrows are being raised about the administration's hikes if it's double-digit. You know, this year our operating budget is going to go up by $200 million. More than half of that was through collective bargaining settlements. Okay. About $140 million for all the rest of the city. So I can tell you that I didn't set the rates, other percentages. That's what was put in there. They've looked at it, they've done their analyses, and that's just the way it is. So I would tell you that. I hate to have it come down to, like, people looking at the money people are making. I look at the work they're doing and how hard people are working, how long they're working, and what it takes. And so, you know, at the end of the day, if the salary commission, of which I don't even know the people on the salary commission except for the one person we put, and that's the truth. If that's their thinking, then you should have somebody from the salary commission come on and you can 
talk to them about that. This summer, lots of folks are looking forward to seeing rail actually in use when Hart turns it over to DTS. And the west side, you know, we'll probably see some of the the advantages of, you know, they'll be able to jump on the the trains. I think it's one of the things we're going to talk about tomorrow night. You know, I'm the fourth mayor to touch this project, so I'm going to have the benefit of probably cutting the ribbon when we start in July. But as we anticipate right now from East Kapolei to Aloha Stadium, it's going to be about a 20-minute ride. And then, as we said last week in the state of the city, we're going to have buses waiting there for every train that comes into the station for people to immediately board. And off they go on some kind of express lanes to downtown, to UH, or anywhere else that they're going to go. And I think that knowing full well that it takes a lot longer to drive in one's car from Kapolei to Aloha Stadium, even though you've got to get off and get on now to an express bus, I think people are going to quickly realize the efficiency of that, the comfort of that. And, you know, again, this is a transformative project. I've talked to transportation experts around the country, and and I know this from personal experience. Understandably, the rail has come under phenomenal criticism all these many years for time delays, budget overruns, confusion, uncertainty. But once you get something in place and it's working, everything changes. And so I think that this, when we talk about it being a transformative project for our island, unprecedented, we'll see what happens. I'm very confident that people are going to be very surprised and really enjoy this. And I'm looking forward to the future of the whole project because it's really a multi-generational project. It's going to go well beyond my life. But, you know, when you look at the population shift that's taking out to the west side and the efficiency of this, I think it's going to be very effective. I happened to be at one of the last community open houses at the rail station before the pandemic shut everything down. And there were families that were really looking forward to it. There was a gentleman who was planning to retire and he was waiting for it to go to the airport so that he could jump on the train from the west side and go Vegas. There you go. But folks are are looking forward to it because I think it, like you mentioned, it would hopefully make things more efficient. And there's a lot of compound factors factors there too. You could even be the fact you don't require that second car in your family and the cost savings there. Look, our plan is we'll be starting this July and then within two years, two years actually by charter, we'll be at Middle Street. And that means we'll be able to go through the airport. And that means we will in the spirit of building a fully functional rail system that would accommodate transportation from the west side through the top three employment centers, we'll have already in just two years from now, we'll be talking about getting through two-thirds of that. I'm excited about that. That's a big contribution to our transportation needs. And look, if you've gone out to the west side and you look at the housing that's out there, it's amazing. I mean, it's pretty massive and there's still a lot of real estate yet to be developed. So I have no doubt. And if I could just give one other plug to take nothing away from somebody riding the rail, I think people are going to be really surprised, as I was, when you get up there and you're the view plane, because we all used to driving on the street, but that elevated ride really makes it aesthetically very pleasing. There's a lot of talk about getting housing up, whether it's along the rail route or, or wherever we can. You announced the rollout of a number of projects right. where you were converting older buildings into housing. You know, yes. you had the, the dormitory, yes. you know, for rentals. There seems to be a shift towards downtown. Lots of activity there, lots of real estate changing hands. This week we're talking about something called adaptive reuse where we're using those old buildings. Exactly. And I, actually, you were there for the kickoff for Liberty Bank. Yes. You know, yes, that's right. Sakamoto. That's why I saw you last. Yes, right. right. And so, you know, it, it's that whole concept of, you know, what is old is new again. And actually building housing and other things faster than if you were doing it from the ground up. Yeah, well, the Liberty Bank building is really kind of a nice story in a sense, that that was a 101-year-old building, you know, kind of being brought back to life. And I'm all for that kind of renaissance here in the urban core. You know, we're doing a really extensive work in Chinatown. Next month, we break ground on Keikalike Mall. We're spending millions of dollars to refurbish that and improve that. And anything and everything in and around the urban core, as we see some of the other high-rises coming up, we're all in favor for it, and we're being very supportive supportive, especially we can do the adaptive reuse on all the buildings. But now you talked about TOD, transit-oriented development. You know, the rail line is going to dictate that. Now, we have several projects in the works because we're anticipating that, but I don't think it's going to be any too long once this begins to manifest that other developers are going to look at other situations because people have a tendency, and this is true everywhere, it's not going to be any different in Hawaii, to want to make their lives as convenient as possible. And, you know, and so 
as we have younger people getting settled into affordable housing places that are you know somewhat close to the rail line are accessible I can see that happening my daughter was living in New York and got used to the pace of you know walking jumping on the train yep. and, and now lives you know downtown where yep. she can walk to work so it's really interesting to see this next generation as they start to look to see where do I want to live sure well you know you look at the whole ward complex and that's what they celebrate and that's what they sell they pretty much say it's a walking community right and given the relative proximity and I think other people once you've lived in another major urban center you begin to understand look our bus line is already not only a nationally award-winning bus line but let me give a perspective because I was surprised when Roger Morton who's our director for transportation services and he ran the bus for over four decades he's a brilliant transportation guy and in a year, if I were to say to you how many people ride the bus, if one ride would be, let's say you get on a stop and you go to a destination and you get off and you're there, that's one ride. But if you get on a bus and you end up doing two or three transfers, that would be considered three rides. In the course of the year, on Oahu, we do 68 million rides. Okay, The people's use of public transportation here, despite all the the people who said this rail would never work as far as convenience is really misguided. We have tremendous amount of bus ridership here, and especially with our younger people, people economically where they can't afford a car because of the cost of it, the parking, insurance, whatever else, and our kapuna, you know, and we have an aging population. So we have a tremendous public transportation clientele already there, and now we're talking about providing something that's never been there before with an incredible ease and efficiency, and we're going to price it accordingly, and I'm not ready to talk about that yet with the holo holo cards and some of the integration that they're going to do. But we want to make this highly effective. I'm looking forward to it being, you know, given all the lament that's gone on. As I said earlier, I'm the fourth mayor to touch this project. I certainly understand the woes of the past. That this, when it begins to take become reality, is going to be a great surprise for our people here. And over time, people will think, why didn't we ever have this before? Yeah, well, you know, I know that there are plans for senior housing in the downtown Chinatown area as well, and it would be an ease for folks to just jump on and off. Well, we have Holly Viola. That was the first project we got done, and that's going to be ready this fall of 23, and I'm really proud of that because that had been promised. Believe me, I'm not saying this to disparage anybody before me, but I I video of that being promised in 2006, that senior affordable housing in Chinatown was going to take place. It just never did. And the other day during the State of the City, I gave a shout-out to the Michaels Corporation for their unwavering commitment, but I was there the day we broke ground, and so was Governor Ige. I know what we did to make that happen. I was really pleased. And now when you look at it, going up there, right near the Sun Yat-sen, the Riverwalk, it's uh, very impressive. Do you think we need to have a separate section in the code for adaptive reuse if the push is to try and you know get housing up faster in some of these older areas? I, th- I think that's likely. I think that you know we're going through a lot with DPP right now. It's one of the things I talked about last week. And one of the things we're talking about is some of the self-certification if Bill 6 pass, passes and even for that matter tenant improvements allowing those to take place before people actually get their permits. So we stopped this whole log jam along with all the other things we're doing to incorporate artificial intelligence, the bot. All of this stuff is designed to take what has been historically a nightmare, a headache, a real burden on people trying to make things happen in the construction sector to try to facilitate. So we get into this kind of thing, you know, as far as adaptive reuse in the urban core. Personally, I'm a big fan of that. And so I want to make sure we can try to streamline that, facilitate that, make that easy for people to do as easy as possible, provided it's all being done professionally. But I actually think that that's about what we're going to create here on our watch. And, Mayor, getting back to the uh, town hall meetings, yeah. you're going to be going you know, around the island. What are, I guess, some of the other top of mind issues that you expect to experience out there? I think the biggest thing is engagement. You never really know what's plaguing somebody. I don't know right now definitively on the North Shore other than the fact that people are dealing with rising sea level, the road construction, setbacks, etc., different things we do with shoreline management, what we can possibly do. This is the kind of stuff we want to get in deep. I don't know exactly what's on the minds of the residents in Kaneohe, for example, but I'm anxious to go out there and really hear that. I mean, there are some things you could say off the top you're aware of, but this is a chance to kind of do that. I know it sounds clear 
cliche, but kind of a deep dive to listen to people. And so I think that's what it's about. It's going to be a discovery. I said earlier, Catherine, I think this is an educational journey all the way around because I think it gives us an opportunity to maybe share with people things that are underway, things that are planned, and even some of the things that we're now bringing to fruition that were in the pipeline before we got into into office. You know, some of these capital improvement programs were started a number of years ago, and now it's just beginning to take place. We can shed some light on that. So hopefully it's just a really good exchange of information all the way around and then action on our part when we can possibly do something to remedy some of the minor ails, if you will, of a community. We've been hearing from Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi. He's rolling out a series of town hall meetings to hear your concerns and to explain some of the initiatives that his administration is launching. The first uh, meeting kicks off in Eva Beach tomorrow night. We will have a list on our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Hakawone, committed to building a neighborhood in Kaka'ako Makai where all are welcome, offering keiki and kupuna care, and including a cultural center, farmers markets, and housing options. Hakawone.com. Today on The Daily, TikTok, used by one in three Americans, is known for videos of dancing, lip syncing, and bread baking. It is now seen by the U.S. government as a threat to national security. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30, following the world. Commercialism in parks is also on Mayor Blangiardi's to-do list. Uh, some say it's simplifying the rules. HPR reporter Casey Harlow joins us mm-hmm. to talk about the city's la- latest initiative to manage commercial park activity and keep the peace in the neighborhood. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. Uh, so you may recall that, you know, for years, even before the pandemic, there was uh, efforts uh, within communities uh, here in Honolulu on Oahu um, to kind of restrict or limit uh, commercial activities. Yeah, we're, rein talk- it in. <laughs> we're talking about those, you know, tour groups, you know, the uh, buses of people coming in, uh, most notably like the North Shore and Kailua Beach Park, you know, and um, the rental companies. And then it's like, well, uh, what about us, the residents, right? And so uh, Bill 19 was introduced last week uh, at the city council, and it's already facing some opposition. But um, Laura Thielen, who's the city's uh, parks and rec director, uh, basically had a press conference before uh, it was taken up at the city council uh, to just explain, you know, what this bill is and isn't. And uh, going back to the Blangi- uh, Mayor Blangiardi wanting to uh, simplify the rules, and this is uh, Laura Thielen just kind of giving the baseline of what uh, their intent with this bill was. And we found that there was um, a lot of laws on the books and a lot of conversation that had taken place in previous laws. But as a result, the chapter was becoming very confusing. Certain things were allowed in some parks. Certain things were completely banned in other parks. Uh, There were certain activities that people wanted to allow in some of the discussion on bills. um, But there weren't definitions in the existing ordinance which clarified that. And so basically what they want to do, right, is uh, just have an island-wide uniform code uh, for everything that's parks-related. So it's not like, you know, one thing here and another thing here. Uh, There's exemptions here. And so uh, basically it's just a starting point uh, for commercial activity to possibly return to parks and beaches, uh, categorizing uh, businesses into two different buckets, uh, one for tour groups and the other for activities such as, you know, weddings and photography and uh, the rentals and everything else. Uh, there is also restrictions and limitations on, you know, these uh, 
tour bus sizes. So it's not like you're going to get these giant Roberts buses uh, coming through your beach parks. Uh, it seems, as the bill net stands now, it's these tour vans that cap them at 12 to 15 or 25 people uh, capacity. And then there's also uh, going to be uh, restrictions and enforcement on possibly, you know, how many buses can be there at one time, uh, the time limits uh, that they can be there, and also caps uh, per day on uh, where um, on how many buses uh, come through this park. So it's not a strain straining or kind of uh, the wild wild west per se for these uh, tour groups, and. Um, Obviously, this measure uh, would reverse everything that's been done, even Bill 38, which was uh, written, uh, passed into law in 2021. Uh, and that basically banned all businesses uh, for certain parks on the North Shore and Windward Oahu. And obviously, there was a lot of people who testified at last week's meeting in opposition. Uh, Kapo Madeiras is one of them, and she's a Waimanalo resident. If recreation and enjoyment is your main concern, then parks need to be free of commercial activity uh, because those, especially in Waimanalo, where I've seen cars line up from all the way inside, all the way out to Kalaniano Ole Highway, and our own very own residents cannot park or enjoy our own beaches and our own parks because of commercialism. And obviously, you know, for uh, Waimanalo residents as well, there is, um, you know, sites that are, uh, you know, of cultural significance. And there was a lot of people who, you know, mentioned that as well of, you know, this is where our ancestors uh, are buried and uh, we don't want to desecrate that at all uh, as well. Obviously, this is the beginning of a discussion. um, Parks Director Thielen says, uh, you know, it's just to stoke a conversation. This isn't... uh, we knew that there was going to be opposition to this bill, but we just want to work with the community to see what we can do going forward. The intent of the bill is to codify the primary purpose of parks is for recreational use. One testifier mentioned that that language should be in other provisions of the bill that have the restrictions, and she's absolutely right. I think, Council Chair, you mentioned that the bill can become a vehicle for expanding additional restrictions or maybe identifying locations where perhaps we would want to have activities and then have bans in other locations. And we are certainly open to that conversation. I think the thing that we would recommend, though, is people do want whatever we end up with to be enforceable. Yeah, very good point. You got to enforce the rules. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of comments were about, you know, hey, you have these regulations and these laws in place right now, but some of the residents say that that's not even being enforced or even have questions about, like, well, how do you ensure that, you know, there's only three buses going to be here at one time? Or, like, even if there's going to be violators, how are you going to ticket them or how are you going to cite them? And so that's the big question going forward, and we'll see what happens next. Right, and then the city's also trying to launch their park ranger program as well later this year. So, yeah, lots of moving parts in this. Exactly. All right, thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We've been hearing from HBR's Casey Harlow about a bill to regulate commercialism in our city parks. Look for links on our website later today. reality check today is a story about a freshman legislator and questions about potential conflicts of interest. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning. Aloha Monday, Catherine. Yes, Aloha Monday. And the story that we're talking about is one by uh, Kevin Dayton. Right. This is on Representative Micah Ayu, brand new uh, to the House of Representatives. He's a lawyer uh, for NAN Incorporated, and I'm sure most people in Hawaii would recognize that name. That's a major contractor. It competes uh, for state contracts, state jobs, and it has been quite successful just since last summer. According to the procurement records that Kevin checked, they've pulled in something like $325 million. They've been awarded those contracts. And so the question is, 
is there a conflict that you have someone uh, who is an attorney for this major contractor when they're voting on legislation, specific bills, budget, CIP projects, and so forth? That That is the question that Kevin is raising in his story. And so uh, what do the lawmakers in the House yeah. say, the leadership? What's the answer? Yeah, mm-hmm. Scott Psyche says, no, 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 there, there, there's no conflict of interest. Remember, it is traditional that any freshman who comes in, they get put on the finance committee because that's where you pretty much learn the ropes of, of how things work, the state budget. Um, it is not a violation of the state ethics law. Uh, for IU to be uh, serving in the capacity that he currently is. Uh, same with the House rules. There's no conflict there. The Speaker goes on to say that, you know, if you look at the state constitution, it is a part-time legislature. It's a citizen legislature. People are expected to have outside jobs to bring that expertise, that experience uh, with them when they come to work on on bills uh, at the Capitol. Of course, the question that's being raised fundamentally is that perception. As as we all well know, we've had a lot of high-profile corruption cases and where there have been clear conflict of interest. And so that's what's being pointed out here. Uh, IU, by the way, according to his financial disclosure, pulling down pretty good money, 100000 between 100000 and $150,000 from NAN. That is uh, something that is public information. Well, and, uh, you know, you you really do want to be able to turn the stone over and, and uh, be real clear because he's just starting out. Well, I think this is what uh, Kevin is getting at. I mean, he did check with a an ethics expert, a scholar on the mainland who said, no, there's, you know, there, there doesn't appear to be a conflict. But what you can do in the, uh, in the case of Mike IU is, is, is be proactive. And IU did check with the House attorney. Uh, he's not involved in these contracts, which are low-bid contracts. They are competitive. They are awarded. Um, He can vote on the budget bill. It's an enormous bill with a whole bunch of different things in there. If for some reason, though, there was a particular... Uh, legislation uh, or a, uh, an appropriation, if you will, where his company, NAN, stood to benefit. The best thing to do, according to this ethics expert, is disclose it. Bring it up. Be forthright about it. Um, IU himself um, says that affordable housing happens to be something that is very important to him. That's why he was elected to represent Moanalua, IEA. Halava, of course, affordable housing also has to do with development, right? Getting people to to give money so that developers can build housing for folks. So, you know, I think IU is aware of that. Uh, Psyche is aware of that. But the best thing you can do is be transparent about the whole process. Right. And then NAN is also a major contractor on the rail project. Well, there is that as well. And I think that's something that um, a lot of people, as you know, that project, very long delayed now, very over budget, not even going to make it to Alamoana currently. But if for some reason, let's say that there was a rail extension, uh, not physically to the structure, but to the, the funding mechanism, because that's something the legislature has to approve, that extension the, or the surcharge, rather, to the general excise tax, uh, the transit accommodations tax, those are set to sunset at some point. But... There's been a lot of talk that that Hart or city officials are going to go back to the legislature and say, you know, we need more money. At that point, maybe uh, Mike IU, if he's still in, in the ledge, would have to consider uh, uh, exclu- uh, you know, excusing himself, saying, look, I, I work for a major rail contractor. So that's another reason why Civil Beat does these stories to sort of get out ahead uh, and, and call attention, particularly in this era when we're so focused on sunshine and, and conflicts of interest. Yeah, and I know this was, wasn't in Kevin's story, but uh, Mike Ayu's mother uh, is in the Senate, Donna Mercado Kim, and uh, there have been issues come up about conflict of interest. Uh, and so, yeah. Right. I mean, she's a she's a very powerful senator. She's been in uh, the Senate for a long time, a former Senate president, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and anybody who knows Donna Kim knows that she... Um, uh, she's, uh, she takes her job very seriously. We'll just put it that way. How's okay. that sound? <laughs> All right. Okay. Thanks so much, Chad. <laughs> sure. That was Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. Uh, read Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at mobi.com. 
Have you listened to talk radio recently? This bottleneck is intentional to try to create an argument for mass immigration. The vast majority at this point of gender confusion is being driven by societal mania. Racial profiling is good for your health. It could save your life. I know a lot of people, oh my God, this is racist. No, it, no, it's not. No, it's not. How did the public airwaves come to be so politically lopsided? The answer is on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Beginning this evening at 7, following The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Waldorf School, with a mission to educate each child to find meaning, passion, and purpose in life. Now accepting applications at honoluluwaldorf.org. The top international architecture award is known as the Pritzker Prize. Two architects in France won it in 2021, not for a fancy design on a new ground-up project, but for the concept of adaptive reuse. Re-envisioning an older structure can be less wasteful and more green. Think about that, making more sense environmentally and financially. Last month, Honolulu architect Dean Sakamoto paid homage to the Liberty Bank building on King Street. Designed by noted architect Vladimir Osipov, it turned 100 last year, and Sakamoto threw a party to celebrate its history and its future. Liberty was started by Chinese businessmen to serve the Asian community, and so it was fitting coming out of the Lunar New Year to celebrate its history and place in Hawaii. The concept is simple. What is old is new again. Shade architect Dean Sakamoto talked with us about this concept of adaptive reuse and why cities across the country and the globe are doing more of it, preserving some part of a structure but writing a new modern story about its reuse. It's kind of like the hermit crab where you find a a shelter and you you make it work. But the technical distinction between adaptive reuse and historic preservation is also something to understand because since the passage of the National Historic Preservation Act in the 1960s, there's been a development from federal down to state jurisdictions to regulate historic preservation. And what that means is, you you know, it's it's a different, it really is kind of a different approach, but similar. So the different and similar. But adaptive reuse allows more flexibility because, you you know, you may have to comply with historic preservation statutes, but at the same time, it's really a programmatic shift. I think that's the big difference where in historic preservation, you can have a programmatic shift, but it's easier, for example, if uh, an old hotel that's on the historic, you know, that's that's landmarked on the historic register stays a hotel, but more difficult if the hotel becomes a bank or becomes a school or becomes housing. Because of the programmatic and functional needs you and technical needs, you may not be able to meet the requirements to get landmarked and get the benefits of being listed on the national or state register. So adaptive reuse is more to me like in the art world, you call it a found object. So it's a building that is there that can be reimagined and repurposed for a new use, both a programmatic, functional, and also technical. Well, we're sitting here in the lobby of what used to be a bank. This is an Ossipoff building, and you are prolonging the life. Yes, that's the other factor is you give an older building new life through making it economically viable and also physically safe and functional. And also you can use it in a creative way. You can you can use the ambiance or some of the elements, like some of the finer elements of the design here that Vladimir Osipov created is the spatial sequence of how you move into this building from the street. There's a gracious entryway, an enclosed entry. You walk up a stair and you see there's this double height bank space with daylight coming in from the west and the north side. So you can take advantage of it and, and also find, reuse some of the surfaces. There's, there's incredible white Portland cement terrazzo. Terrazzo is a, a mixture of concrete and marble chips that's polished down. And, and we, in this project, we made it a point to expose as much of it as possible. Some of it was covered up by the, the bank who occupied the space most recently. And we were able to do some of that work just a few weeks ago. And we also can use, reuse, for example, the former teller line that was set up for the Liberty Bank and also used by American Savings Bank as a teller line, but actually streamlined it and turned it into a stand-up bar for the event space that we're sitting in right now. 
And so your offices are here, and so you really have the opportunity to draw other businesses in, and they can make it their own. We see a lot of activity, you know, going on down in Kaka'ako, but there also just seems to be this shift where folks are now looking at downtown and and what can we do to either extend the life either with residential you know, as we're seeing with the high rises you know, or something else it, you know it's really adaptive reuse also operates on the urban scale if you look at Chinatown as a district and consider Chinatown as a place or even Kaka'ako as a place that's being repurposed uh, as a found condition as a pre-existing condition but given new life through new program a new real estate development but in the case of Chinatown Honolulu which is actually a, a landmark district. Fifteen blocks of the present Chinatown is on the listed on the National Register uh, of Historic Places. So there's regulations that any new development or even existing development has to comply with in Chinatown in response to national rules, the Historic Preservation Act. It's also city special design district. So was it tricky coming down here and, and uh, looking at what you could do or couldn't do in the space? You know, part of playing the game is knowing the rules. And with this building uh, in particular, the uh, former Liberty Bank building, uh, it's such a strong building on its own. There's an Ossipoff design. It's, it's simple. It's clear. It, it's, it's, it really sits well in the corner. You know, I see no need to really change the exterior of the building. But, of course, on the inside, there's been changes over the years. But that's not such a big concern for the regulators uh, Well, in relation to the Historic Preservation Act. They do want to keep the semblance of what used to be here on the inside. But that's part of what we've done in this uh, refresh of the interior space is to bring it back closer to what it was, closer to what it was in 1953 than 2023, actually. So we're, we're trying hard to retain the integrity of Ossipoff's design, but we have yet to see what the true function of the space is beyond an event space. And, you know, you are one of the few buildings, I think, that has this awesome rooftop view of Chinatown. You know, we just took a look at WOFAT, which is uh, undergoing transformation, right? There's plans for, what, hotels down here, uh, you know, so things are happening. People may not see it right now. Things may be boarded up, but, but things are happening. So cities, like people, uh, go through cycles. And I really believe, uh, and I, I think it's the evidence is pretty clear, that, that this district is on the upswing. The Wolfat will open it within the year. That's the plan anyhow. And also regarding the roof terraces, it was quite common here in Chinatown. Wolfat also had a pavilion on the roof. But it was enclosed over 50 years ago, and the operators of the of the new of the hotel and restaurant at Wolfat decided, you know, they needed to make it work revenue wise. They needed to enclose it. So once that's open, you'll see evidence of what used to be as a roof terrace, and actually there there are a few balconies out there too. So uh, what's nice about it, from our experience on the rooftop today here the, at the King Liberty Building, we could see the wolf fat. So there's a nice uh, kind of visual connection, and we're, we're uh, less than a block away. You call this area a diamond in the rough, right? I mean, lots of efforts are uh, underway right now to, you know, to clean up the area, to draw people down here. There are amazing little art galleries, uh, amazing restaurants, and you know, people just need to, to realize that things are coming back. Well, Chinatown is one of the few, I guess, traditional urban experiences in Honolulu, which was more common before the Second World War, uh, turn of the century, when, uh, when not everyone had cars. Uh, and we did have a mass transit system, uh, you know, from the early 1900s. There was a streetcar that went down King Street. And we did have, you know, people forget there was a rail system, the ORNL, that, that basically transferred the sugar sugar cane into town and took people out to the countryside. So there was urban activity pretty much through the urban core here, and, and there still is, but, you know, it, uh, we're still, I think, living through the late 20th century automobile culture here, but Chinatown has, because it's uh, listed in the, on the National Register, it is still a traditional urban environment, and, and how that works is there's a restriction on the building height, and it, it's harder to take a building down because you have to go through a, a more entitlement processes to do that, and then when you do a new project, you, you also have to go through a state regulated a process called the environmental assessment and the city also looks reviews that because it's a special district well what's your hope then for this building my hope is that our design office can be here and everything else around us gets more lively the building here the banking hall that we're sitting in should i really believe that it should be a kind of a semi-public space that relates to uh, and supports culture and commerce 
uh, in this district and in, in, in the state in general. Because the building is well situated within the district, it, it's a highly visible street corner. It holds the corner really well as a building, as an urban artifact. And it also has a space that can host, like we saw a few weeks ago, you know, a pretty cool event. Whether it becomes a, a nightclub or a, a social club or, uh, or just a space that can provide people gathering uh, with, with food and entertainment and to promote culture and commerce uh, in the district. What are your thoughts just about all the adaptive reuse that we're going to start seeing in the downtown area with all the residential coming up from the commercial spaces, office spaces to to homes? Well, there's two things that are really, I think, really important and considerations to, uh, you know, and reasons really to consider adaptive reuse first. The first is it's the most sustainable thing to do because you're not taking down a building. You know, a building is a structure. It's, it's full of embodied energy and carbon. And so you can work with that and give it new life. And secondly, I think uh, by partially restoring or fully restoring to the historic preservation thing and, or just keeping the structure, uh, you, you keep an aspect of collective memory. So there's there's a feeling, uh, you know, people can relate to people, you know, who've been around or even people new to the islands and, and, the, and the neighborhood can see that, oh, maybe this was something, you know, it was something before it became this. So I think for, uh, for environmental reasons, for cultural reasons, it makes a lot of sense to first see how we can work with what's in front of us. Work with what's in front of us, the design challenge and the beauty of what's possible. That was architect Dean Sakamoto talking about the Liberty Bank building on the corner of Monica and King, designed by modernist Vladimir Osipov, who Sakamoto wrote a book about. And tomorrow we continue Adaptive Reuse Week. We hear from the developers who transformed a downtown high-rise from office spaces to rental units. The residences at Bishop Place turning heads. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. What do amateur astronomers and NASA's attempt to redirect an asteroid have to do with each other? Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR Dave Lawrence to explain in your Monday Stargazer. It's Stargazer time, as usual. Turning to uh, astronomer Christopher Phillips as we find out stuff that's happening in the universe around us and also things we can try and spot in our dark island skies. We happen to have them on the line right now. Chris, what's going on? Welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week's stargazers, the planet Venus can be seen in the western sky after sunset. It is one of the brightest objects in the sky, and so it is very easy to spot. The moon this week is a mere crescent, and so conditions for stargazing will be wonderful right through to week's end. And on that note, we have a uh, story that relates to our Indo-Pacific neighborhood and amateur astronomers bearing witness to a pretty scary sounding uh, event. Indeed. Amateur astronomers continue to be an excellent source of high quality astronomical observations, often complementing the work of scientists using large ground and space-based facilities. The most recent contribution of amateur astronomers has been through the follow-up observations of NASA's Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART mission, which involved the intentional collision of the DART spacecraft with an asteroid in an attempt to study whether redirecting a potentially hazardous asteroid was possible using current technology. This is some pretty fun stuff here. Tell us about the group and what they found. Oh, it's really cool. This most recent contribution is actually from three teams based on Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean and a team in Nairobi. They were all able to watch the impact between the spacecraft and the asteroid in real time and gather important scientific data about the collision and, of course, the ensuing aftermath. And what sort of method of observation were these uh, telescopes and stuff? Well, they were actually using fairly small telescopes, about four to five inches in diameter, somewhat smaller than the meter-class instrument on Mauna Kea. However, even small telescopes like this, when equipped with the right camera, can produce high-quality science. Especially if they have good skies. Yeah, and out there in the Indian Ocean, it's going to be amazing. You know what else is cool about this sort of thing, Chris, whenever you point these out, is it's just another example how everyday folks like you listening right now could be able to make a difference in discovering something in the world of astronomy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's one of the wonderful things about the collaborative nature of astronomy and the fact that high-quality astronomical observations 
operations can be conducted using relatively inexpensive equipment that can be sourced off the shelf, so to speak, by anyone with an interest in the heavens. I would advise anyone who wants to get involved in such endeavors to reach out to their local astronomical society or local university and join in the fun. It's Christopher Phillips, another insightful Stargazer report. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. The military is looking to hire about 150 apprentices at its Pearl Harbor shipyard. It is limiting applications to the first 2,500. It's a four-year paid program with on-the-job training. Colette Gibo says she recalled being apprehensive when she first applied 20 years ago, but she was happy to get set on a career path with good job benefits. It's a paid apprenticeship with the Department of Navy, and we offer careers in various industrial trades supporting the U.S. Navy's Pacific Fleet. So just as you would take your vehicle to a dealership or a repair shop or, you know, for maintenance or repairs or upgrades, the U.S. Navy needs to take their ships and submarines somewhere for repairs, maintenance, upgrades. So that would be Pearl Harbor. And so we train a civilian workforce to provide this service to the Navy to support their ships. Our program has been around since 1920. We're currently accepting applications, and we have capped this year off at 2,500, just because we do receive thousands of applications every year, and we are limited, because there is an exam to this, we are limited by a budget, because there is a cost to these exams. So 2,500 is the amount that we were allotted for the number of exams that we can provide this year. So walk us through this process, you know, uh, I mean, you've got a deadline coming up. Yes, so they can go on to usajobs.gov and they can search Trades Apprentice and Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard and they can apply now. So the announcement will be open um, until Monday and it does close at approximately 5.59 Hawaii Standard Time, I believe. So uh, they shouldn't wait. They should apply as soon as possible if they are interested. So there are some requirements to make it through the initial process of applying. So they need to be at least 18 years of age by the start date. They need to be a U.S. citizen. They also need to be registered with Selective Service if they're a male. And they also need to have their high school diploma or equivalent. So once their application is received, once the announcement closes, in about two to three weeks after that, they'll receive an invitation through email to take an online exam. Once they take the exam, our managers will review their resumes for those who pass the exam. And the resumes that they are interested in interviewing for those who passed, those people will be invited for an interview. Once they pass the interview process, they'll be invited to come in for a security and physical examination. And the process goes on from there. So it's about a one-year process. It is a long process. So our start date would be April of 2024. Oh, you're, you're actually seeking applicants for a year out. Yes. Talk about the types of trades. So we're looking for those interested in doing ship fitting, sheet metal, welding, inside and outside machinists, electronics, electricians, electronic measurement equipment mechanics, tool room and equipment mechanics, pipe fitters, AC and refrigeration mechanics, insulators, fabric workers, plastic fabricators, shipwrights, painters, rigging, heavy mobile equipment mechanics, and non-destructive test inspectors. These are a lot of jobs. Yes, there's quite a bit that we're looking for. We are currently the, the largest industrial employer in the state of Hawaii. And talk about the, the the folks that have come in, let's say, through an apprenticeship program. I mean, do they pretty much stay at Pearl Harbor? You know, how does that work? Or they, they, they move on to other things? Majority of our apprentice do stay within the shipyard. A lot of them go on to become managers or analysts like myself. I went through the apprenticeship program or instructors or there's a lot of different positions and there's a lot of opportunities within the shipyard to move to. And some have also moved on, but majority stay here. I want to say about 60% stay 
within and I believe 40% of our workforce has been through the apprenticeship program. So what was that like for you when you started as an apprentice? It was very exciting. It was fun. I did know somebody at the time that worked at the shipyard, and they told me about the position, and I applied, and I wasn't too sure about taking the position at the time, but it's been a very good decision for me. And so how long have you been there? I have been with the shipyard for 22 years. Wow. So our starting pay is approximately $21 an hour. We do have quite a bit of benefits, so health insurance, life insurance, flex spending. Our version, the federal version of the 401k, which is the TSP, um, the thrift savings plan. We are hiring approximately 150 apprentices for next year's class. At the end of the four-year program, they are slated to be making approximately $34 an hour, so which is really nice because not too many positions can say that here in Hawaii. It's an avenue. If they don't want to, let's say, do, do college, this is another career path. Definitely. This is another career path that they can take. After two years with our program, they are expected to receive associate's degree with the Honolulu Community College, which we have a partnership with right now. And... It's just another way that they can support the military as well. And then are the classes at the community colleges or are they there on base? The classes are here on base. So it's nice. So you can go to classes and go to work and you don't need to drive anywhere. So it's part classwork and then on the job. Yes, everything is during the workday. So they'll get paid while going to class. Our work hours are 6.30 to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. So a little bit early for some people. Biggest thing that is a draw for a lot of people here is no experience necessary. So if they're interested, they should try and apply. Tell their friends, family. What percentage are women? I'm just curious. Currently, our percentage is approximately, I believe, 11% women. So we're hoping to raise that number. We have been reaching out to some of the high schools and doing some career fairs here and there. Mm-hmm. But I just want to remind everybody to apply is on usajobs.gov. Okay. And if they want more information, they can also head to the shipyard's Facebook page. We've been hearing from Colette Gibo, one of the certifying officials for the apprenticeship program at Pearl Harbor. Again, you are up against a tight deadline. It closes at midnight on the East Coast, which is 6 p.m. Hawaii Standard Time today. So look for links on the conversation page of our website for more info. Well, we're out of time now, but tomorrow the head of the Center for Disease Control will be talking with us. She's in town today, so we'll be catching up with her. What are your thoughts about long COVID or maybe the next pandemic and how we respond knowing what we know now? Miss part of a segment today and want to listen back to something? You can find the Conversation podcast online or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.